0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Welcome to A New Week. We're going to talk with Kirk Milson today. He's author of 9,000 Miles of Fatherhood, A True Story. Surviving crooked cops, teenage angst, and Mexican moonshine on a journey to the end of the road with his 13-year-old son. Many transformations resulted, and that is our conversation coming up. But first, Unfinished Business from Thursday. We uh, talked, we revisited our conversation from last year with uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin, Pulitzer Prize winning uh, author of uh, Team of Rivals. And the book we were talking about uh, was about Theodore Roosevelt and uh, his vice president, of the Gilded Age and the Reformation, uh, the Reform Era. And uh, this is what uh, Steve in uh, Arizona says about the uh, conversation by email. Your distinguished guest states that for decades, the government seemed more the problem than the solution. I must disagree. It's not that the government seemed the problem, but rather that a well-funded movement, whose principal spokesman was Ronald Reagan, falsely claimed so and actively foisted this damaging perception on a substantial portion of the American public. But the government itself was not truly the issue. It was a false perception created for political purposes. I would also like to disagree on a second point Ms. Goodwin makes. She spoke about the Gilded Age belief that private interests were more powerful than the government, and she noted that the solution was for the government to actively confront these powerful interests. She goes on to contrast that with the modern era and tells us that today the problem is that government is too bureaucratic to effect such a solution. But I think the problem today is a perfect mirror— of the Gilded Age. Again, in many ways, the private interests are more powerful than the government, but it is not bureaucracy that stands in the way of a fix, but rather it is the fact that we have a system of effectively legalizing bribery in Washington and state capitals, and so the government is controlled by private interests and is unwilling to confront them. That is Steve in Beaverdam, Arizona. Thank you for your perspective, Steve. This uh, ca- uh, conversation can continue on our website, upr.org. Just look for Doris Kearns' good one there. Now, to 9,000 Miles of Fatherhood. Uh, Kirk Milson was forced out of his high ranking editorial position at the local newspaper. He couldn't bear the thought of starting all over, crawling back to the copy desk. So, when his new boss offered him a leave of absence, he jumped at the chance to realize his dream of driving the more than 4,000 miles from Salt Lake City to Panama's Darien Gap. His wife readily consents, with one minor catch, he has to take his son Peter along for the ride. And so the book, 9,000 Miles of Fatherhood, follows uh, Kirk and his emotionally estranged 13-year-old son on a four-month-long journey. In this true no-frills travelogue, in spite of robbers, corrupt law enforcement, their subpar Spanish, Kirk and his son Peter undergo an astonishing transformation. We welcome in uh, Kirk Milson. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for coming up. Appreciate uh, you. You. You and your wife uh, live in Salt Lake City, I think.
1: Yes, yes, we do. And uh, I was just a little worried about the cell service and dropping off, so we thought we'd come on in.
0: Well, it's always better to have, have you in, in studio. Yeah. And uh, we uh, do have your wife Allison in studio with us as well. So maybe we'll, we'll uh, throw a few questions your way as well. Okay. Um. So let's just start at the beginning. Salt Lake Tribune was your employer, and it uh, you started at sort of at the bottom, copy editor. I had. But somehow reached the lofty heights of editorial writer.
1: Yeah, over 20 years, um, and I was on the uh, editorial board. Uh, probably a lot of your listeners are familiar with that big newspaper ownership fight that culminated in 2002 with media news taking over, and they fired... Uh, The two guys, my best allies in the uh, paper, the two guys that thought I was a genius and brought in a bunch of guys who thought I was stupid. Uh, The two guys they fired were the publisher and the general manager. Um, So I was forced out of the editorial board, offered a place on the copy desk, and I, at the time I heard that, I just said, no, I quit. But the editor down there was also a... an ally, editor at the time, Jay Shalady, and he convinced me, now just take some time off. Take all you need, you know, come on back uh, when you feel like it, but to the copy desk. Yeah. So.
0: And this would be unpaid time, but it, it's, it's time that you thought, well, yeah, I need to clear my head. And...
1: Yeah, absolutely. So that's when I got this great idea to, uh, to hop in the car and, and drive to the end of the road. So uh, you had had a trip in college, which sort of was an inspiration. It was. Uh, First time I'd been out of the country, I went with my uh, good friend from Arizona, uh, Troy Gillenwater. Um, He had been to Mexico plenty of times, knew all about it. So he had these uh, fantastic places for us to go, the Barrancas del Cobre. We spent a few weeks backpacking through there. And um, and it just kind of enchanted me, the whole uh, just south of the border experience. And when the time came to come home... You know, if had if I'd had my way, I'd have continued south. Um, I had a Dodge Dart um, at the time that we were down there in. And so that kind of became part of this whole romantic dream I had for 20 years after. Mm-hmm. Uh, drive back down there in a Dart.
0: And it turns out at this point, 2002,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you have a Dart? I have another one. If I yeah. was looking in the paper one day and there was one for $600 a um, few years before so we went out there looked at it started and actually ran very well so uh, yeah I had another dodge dart at the time
0: what was it about a dodge dart you, you thought I, I guess you'd had relatives yeah. who who told you well, this wouldn't stand out in third world countries so that, that
1: you know it was more that that was the the car of my youth that was my first car a dodge dart and I knew they were um, they were built like tanks they were dependable um, uh, you couldn't you couldn't hurt them. My first Dart, I probably went two years without changing the oil, um, and it still ran. So uh, I, I just loved them and roomy too. I'm a big guy, and uh, I, I fit in those cars. It was like they built them for me.
0: Hmm. Let's see, set the scene for your uh, of your family. You and your wife Allison, two children. Mm-hmm. Um, your, your son Peter, 13 years old, and a daughter Hannah, who's what 10, I think, at the time. At the time. Um, and, and this this job is, as editorial writer was higher up, was more prestigious than copy editor, but mm-hmm. it was pretty stressful, and and you couldn't turn the switch off. And That's right. Some it,
1: problems. It was all consuming. It was one of those jobs where I'd get into a, a an issue, and research it, and write it, and take it home, and look at it again, and noodle it, and rewrite it, and get up at five the next day, and go in early, and work on it till I had to turn it in and start all over again i didn't you know i didn't have weekends off i didn't have nights off and i kind of felt i think a lot of guys are like that when they have a job that's kind of consuming they feel like entitled almost to check out from the family you know i'm doing my part um, don't bother me yeah and uh, i i think that had a negative influence on my son in particular mm-hmm. are you right that uh, other members of the family knew to sort of steer
0: clear He's a 13-year-old boy, I guess. he, So he'd kind of come into your crossfire.
1: Yeah, Yeah, he would and, you know, loud. And we'd also had a very good relationship when he was little, did a lot of camp and things like that. So suddenly dad doesn't want him around anymore is is how I look at it. And he would try to get my attention. And, you know, I'm stressed out and trying to think about how to put this perfect paragraph together. And he's interrupting me. And it just didn't work out well for a couple of years. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, and Allison, I wonder if we could bring you in. Is
0: that okay? Yeah. move your there there closer. Uh, One thing stood out. Kirk says that that at least one of the perks of the job was he felt like it it, it sort of made you proud. Oh, That that you you could drop, okay, my my husband talked with... Senator yeah, so-and-so.
3: Yeah. I, I, that's true, but I think it was more in his mind that he was proud about oh, that. Oh, okay. Right. That yeah. he could make you proud Yeah, in, in, yeah in his Yeah. Mind, yeah. yeah. I, I was happy with him being on the copy desk, too. Yeah. yeah,
4: yeah.
0: Uh, so the, the,
3: the one thing that was a big change is that now he was home in the night, and because for years he'd worked evenings, and and it was just the kids and I for dinner and bedtime, bath time, whatever, whenever, like the two nights he'd be home a week, it was a party time. It's like, Dad's home, and we do something special. So at at the very first, when he was home every night, it was like, yay, this is just so great. And we were expecting, you know, kind of our party time. And then it's like, oh, wait a minute. It's not so fun anymore.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Turned into more kind of a stress because, uh, as you say, Kirk, you couldn't turn the switch off. You were Mm -hmm. always thinking about the the job. Uh, So uh, it sounds like Hannah dealt with things differently than Peter.
3: Hannah was much quieter and... that was just, you know, kind of stayed below the radar and kind of could sense things. Peter was just a typical boy, you know, a lot of energy and wants to play and have a good time and yeah, yeah. Maybe not as in tune to oh, oh I better be quiet and you know he learned, but right, right. You learn.
0: So Kirk, you you hatch this idea. Mm-hmm. It, it just comes to you. I think you remember this 1983 trip. Mm-hmm. You you think, hey, I've got time off. I right. don't want to sit around the house. Right. I'm going to go to the Darien Gap. Yes. Use my Dodge Dart.
1: But then you think, I'm never going to be able to sell this to my wife. Well, no. You know, you can't go home and say, hey, I've lost this job. Um, I'm going to take all our savings. I'm going to drive to South America, and I'll see you in four months. (laughs) I just knew that wasn't going to fly. So I enlisted my son. Um, Just makes it more respectable. Um, You know, I, I have to admit, at the time, if I could have got out of town by myself, I would have. Yeah. And there, there's a kind of a long pause. You broach this to to Peter. Mm-hmm. And he does say yes. He does. But, you know, again, he's probably at first thinking, well, wait a minute, trapped in a car with this uh, grumpy old man um, doesn't sound like much fun. But yeah. ultimately, he, uh, he decided, yeah, I'll go. Yeah.
3: Well, and, and what 13 year old boy doesn't jump at a chance to miss four months of school? Yeah, I guess know? that's a selling point to him. <laughs> yeah. Like,
2: yeah.
0: So, so, in the meantime, you're nervous. You don't know what Allison's going to say. And the surprise was, Allison...
3: I wanted to go. Yeah. And and we had had a dream for a number of years trying to figure out how we could get our whole family down south of the border, spend a year, learn Spanish, you know, keep our house somehow, keep our job somehow to come back to. And we just couldn't make that fly. So, yeah. It was like this was the only way it was really going to work.
0: You had to say, "How i earn some money? You yeah. could not afford to take off, especially no. if he just lost well, his job." Well, yeah,
3: and to you know keep my job for a year to come back to that wouldn't have worked. Or, I mean, we had tried in the past, not, or just trying to come up with ideas of how to make it work, and it just yeah. it was we couldn't overcome the obstacles.
0: Well, this is high comedy in the book, Kirk. You, your goal once once you've got permission, maybe your wife and your son wants to come get out of town before before the naysayers put put a damper on this yeah that's the in-laws that's your mother that's you 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 don't know what's going to happen
1: right you know it's the reasonable people i i just knew that reason would win out unless i got out of town fast because really this is a nutty idea
0: so you and peter start chucking anything that you know you're not planning this out just chuck anything in the dodge dart you just want to get out of town
1: just out of town so we had that thing so packed um You know, we're driving down the road, and I'm down around Nephi, and I look down at the gas gauge, which ought to still be about at least three quarters, and it's down to about, you know, below half. Um, I was getting about 12 miles to the gallon. You know, this (laughs) thing was like a tank. This was
0: was not a planned out trip. No, (laughs) no, not at all. In fact, you contrast this with uh, a trip that you had heard. A couple of uh, guys traveled uh, from the tip of Argentina up to the
1: Arctic Circle. They raised a bunch of money, planted out – Oh, yeah. They took years to plan it. They uh, raised $350,000. Um, uh, it was a speed trip. you know. It was a little more technical than mine. Um, they set some speed record doing it 23 days. Um, but yeah, I had to laugh at all of it. They had binders filled with every eventuality. And I just wanted to get across the, uh, the border before my mom called the cops. <laughs> <laughs> what are you, doing? you You felt like your mom would, would try to stop this.: Yeah, she, she's a reasonable person. Yeah, she yeah. would worry,
0: of course. And her grandson, uh, yes, going along as well. Uh, so tell me about those first few days.
1: Your, your, um, uh, no air conditioning?: No air conditioning. This is the heat of summer. This is August. Um, it was, you know, like 110 from Phoenix. Uh, well into Mexico. You're going across the Chihuahuan Desert all day long in that thing. The windows down, hot air blasting you, dust, um, just miserable. And silence between Peter and I, and, you know, uh, at first you could blame the, the hot air rushing through the uh, the windows, but when, when we did stop, you know, it wasn't a whole lot better. We didn't have a whole lot to talk about. Yeah. And at some point, and this is, you know, I can just see this, this 13-year-old kid,
0: he says, um, I might have forgotten to bring my shoes. <laughs> <I
4: know.
1: laughs> and yeah, we had, we had,
3: that's Peter. <laughs> yeah,
1: like five chairs and three camp stoves yeah. and everything you could possibly imagine we might need. And he forgot his shoes. He had his box of Legos, mm-hmm. um, but no shoes. He so you brought
3: what was important. What was important? <laughs> that's
0: right.
1: But he knew he might be
0: in trouble because yeah. he hadn't brought yeah. shoes. Your plan is to trade the Legos in for or some shoes is that well shoe?
1: he that was kind of his because he tells me this and we're driving down the highway past this mall in tucson and my first thought is this kid he's he is a um, wheeler dealer and he loves stuff and it was not beyond the, the realm of possibility that he had researched that mall and and found a store he wanted to go to um because that was where we were going to go for his his uh uh, his shoes so i pull off on the side of the highway i'm a little angry we get out we're digging through the trunk i find his legos he he thinks hey maybe we can trade those for some shoes he's just trying to calm me down
0: mm-hmm. interesting so tell me a bit about your relationship at this point you have you've had this stressful job mm-hmm. you were close earlier but probably not as close now yeah he jumps
1: at a chance to miss school and whatever mm-hmm. maybe to be with his dad but it, nervous about that too you know um at this point, I think we just didn't have much in common. Uh, there was um, the, the barrier from a couple of years of just kind of a not not a real positive way of uh, interacting, uh, particularly on my part. Um, there was also the the fact that I was realizing, hey, this is a 1983 again. You know, now I'm down here. I'm with this kid. I don't relate to. I don't have a job. That would that was always weighing on my mind, and. Um, it was a little depressing at first you know yeah I'm out of the country I'm on this big trip but it it, it dawned on me this isn't a college, you know fandango this is uh, this is going to be a whole kind of different trip than mm-hmm. I'd, I I'd kind of thought it might be uh, you illustrate it very well this this agreement
0: you make with your son mm-hmm that uh, for anything I guess unkind or or, or bad that you say you're you're gonna pay him a certain amount of money
1: yeah some reviewer call it the Central American um, version of a swear jar but it was more than uh, it was more than cussing uh, that wasn't the big deal it was um, it was just trying to relate to him more positively not saying no no sarcasm you know if I raise my voice I had a tendency which I learned on this trip to get tired stressed out whatever and dump on the people closest to me Um and, and I realized that. And so I started paying him uh, every time, you know, I felt guilty about doing something. And it, this did two things, made me think about it, think before I said something. And for him, I think the important thing was he realized I was trying. He realized the problem wasn't him. The problem was with me. And um, that, you know, that, that I was really working hard, that I really did love him. Hmm. So that must have been very important to him I think it the was exact, yeah realization yeah. yep his uh, his confidence started building from that yeah. point tell me what he said when you broached this well this plan I told him you're gonna make some money anytime I cuss anytime I raise my voice anytime I say anything thing unfriendly and he sat there for a second and he goes I'm gonna be rich <laughs> <laughs> did he get rich from that or did you not well bit, uh, I guess probably the first time week he made the 90% of what he made the, the rest of that trip mm-hmm. you know it's hard it's hard habit to break but yeah. um toward toward the end of that week you know he's like he's almost goading me yeah. because he it, it's it's no longer um it, turned into a joke. It, it did it's no longer a serious thing now hey if dad does that I get paid mm-hmm. so um it really it really was effective
0: yeah we're going to take a break when we come back we'll uh, get into across we'll the border as it were Crooked Cops, Teenage Angst, Mexican Moonshine, Journey to the End of the Road, Nine Thousand Miles of Fatherhood—a true story. Kirk Milson is the author, and we have Kirk Milson in with us uh, in studio, also his wife uh, Allison. Talking about a uh, nine thousand mile road trip in 2002 that Kirk Milson took with his son Peter. Uh, A lot of transformation happened. We'll uh, get into some of the uh, hair-raising stories. There, you did have some adventures. We'll get into some of those following this break.
2: L O L. What happens? Let's do. When
1: technology starts to change our language. Lol, let's do this interview via
2: text. Lol. <laughs> it would take us like forever to do this by text. Oh, lol. And Guy Raz, Spoken and Unspoken Stories from the Frontiers of Human Communication. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Monday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members at area-info.net, providing a social media outlet for personalized press releases, business news, business events, and opinions. Information at area-info.net. Thanks for
0: listening today. I'm Tom Williams. This is Access Utah. The book is 9,000 Miles of Fatherhood. Erk Milson's editorial writer for the Salt Lake Tribune. And in the changeover in ownership, he is forced out of that position. He's offered a, a trip back 20 years and down the down the ladder to copy editor. Uh, he's thinking about that. His boss uh, gives him some time off. And in that time, he hatches this uh, scheme to, uh, to travel from Salt Lake City to Panama, to the Darien Gap, which is essentially is the end of the road. Um, but... To be able to do this, he has to take along his thirteen-year-old son. Turns out to be a, a, a journey of fatherhood and uh, and improved uh, relationships and and there are many adventures: teenage enks, crooked cops, Mexican moonshine, and uh, many other adventures. The No Tell Motel. I wonder, Kirk Milson, if you could <laughs> tell us about that. Yeah, you you open the book with this scene. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I, you're I think you've crossed the border now. You're into yeah. into Mexico Chihuahua City. Uh-huh.
1: Uh, tell us about that. Okay. Well, because we had so much stuff and I had this car, I, was, I wanted to find a secure uh, hotel. Um, this first one and every one after that uh, we wound up going to were these places that guys would take uh, prostitutes, um, illicit affairs, whatever. They call them the no motels. But the reason they did is they had garages. They were secure. So we pull into this first one. I have no idea what we're pulling into. Guy waves me into the garage, pulls the garage door down, opens this little slot uh, in the garage door and trades me a key for some money. And then we go on upstairs and um, there's a knock on the door a little later. I'm coming out of the shower. I had, we had run out. I had gotten a six pack of beer. I was you know thirsty from all day in the car and manager comes in. And he comes strutting down the hall, and I hadn't gone into the, the room proper yet. I'd gone right for the shower. And he walks in, and there's my son in his boxer shorts with a beer he'd grabbed on his chest staring at a TV screen with um, uh, pornography on it. It was one of these uh, no-tell motels. And now the guy wants more money, not because you know some, some he wasn't worried about the – uh, tawdriness of this situation, he just thought that uh, you know, you're gonna have a boy up here. You owe me more money. Yeah, uh, amazing. Um, <laughs> yeah, he thought the boy was for a different
0: purpose. Yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. and that was like every place we went. Uh, yeah. those were the places we wound up because yeah. it was it had secure garages. Yeah,
3: and they were cheap.
0: Right. Yeah. So, are you thinking at at any point along the way, I'm gonna have to go back after this and tell my wife. Yeah.
1: You know, a, about that? I, I had my son in a hotel. You know, yeah. not on purpose, but... Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, first thing we did is never turn the TV on again in those places. Um, uh, it, it, they truly were the safest places for us. And once I figured out what was going on, um, you know, I could deflect a lot of the negatives from Peter. He's He argued with me when he read this book. He, he was not aware that these places were what they were until the very last one oh. in Veracruz, mexico on the way home mm-hmm. by then he'd kind of wised up a little bit and uh and he goes no dad that was the that was the last one and i don't know peter it's every one of them yeah. that's probably good he didn't
0: realize you know, yeah so it's, it's, yeah it's, i it's kept a lot of stuff alarmed. from him <laughs> so what was the those early days in mexico then what, what was peter's were you concerned for your safety I guess you you know, you knew that there is possibility of robbery of you know whatever you you are a couple of Americans. Mm-hmm. and this is two thousand two, and attitude toward Americans is not.
1: yeah, it wasn't not great all that and positive. And we didn't have a lot of money. We were forced to send to areas the working class areas of any town we were in. and so the people there were a little probably less uh, accommodating to Americans than they were up in the tourist areas. And there was just a lot of hostility on the street, especially in Oaxaca, Mexico, when we first got there. I didn't feel like the street crime problem was uh, huge in Oaxaca. It was just the hassle of, you know, people stepping out into your path and giving you an elbow in the ribs as you go by and talking under their breath. And um, on these little narrow sidewalks, there was this, uh, this idea uh, that, that you didn't want to yield you know they would not yield to me and i just figured you know what if that's the case and i do yield we're going to look weak and I, and i just figured down there in that culture that would be a bad thing to do so we had this thing called sidewalk chicken where every time we came upon somebody somebody had to give way and we'd wind up wrestling past each other and peter who's following along behind you know th- th- he doesn't like any of this he's not a confrontational kid a little nervous being down there anyway and uh, and I think it just, um, you know, that first week, week and a half, um, it was a little more stressful on him than uh, uh, ideal. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: let's fast forward a bit, uh, backtrack if we, if we need to. You're in Guatemala, mm-hmm. Quetzaltenango, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you got there later than you wanted to. You, you made a practice of getting in your motel by, by dark, I think. Mm-hmm. And you go to an ATM which is high drama, you're sure robbers are around.
1: Yeah. It, 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 this was a reflection of my poor planning, uh, just in general. We got to Guatemala with no local currency. I'd used my ATM, which I could only use once every 24 hours, in Mexico the night before. So I had to wait until 9 o'clock when I could get some Guatemalan currency. You know, I had plenty of pesos, but they didn't want pesos in Cape at this hotel. So the hotel manager sent us out down the block, pitch black, to the only ATM in town, which is near this uh, open park. And it's just this, this beacon of light. is a glass uh, door you could lock behind you. But, you know, everybody from all around can spot you in there. So I had Peter staked out at the door. I'm getting the, the, the money, and I was only going to get a little bit if he saw anybody. And he goes, not nah, close is clear. So I get $300 in Quezales, which is, you know, it's a stack like a loaf of bread. And now I'm stuffing that in my pants and (laughs) we step out of that thing and somebody comes right out of the darkness, rushing out of the darkness, yelling, give me your money. And we'd had this plan, um, since Mexico, anybody comes up to rob us, we just hand the money over. We always carried money in our pocket. Not all of it. I had most of it secreted away in my shorts, but, um. Just pull a little bit out, hand it to him, no problem. But both of us uh, just reacted the same way. You know, I yell, run. Well, Peter was already two steps ahead of me up the sidewalk, and we just sprinted all the way home with this guy behind us. We could hear his footsteps. He was wearing boots, and uh, they they receded. Um as we were racing for this uh, for this hotel. The manager, he's got his head out the door waving wildly. Come on, come on, come on. As soon as we got in there, he slammed this big wooden door. <laughs> Told me how dangerous it was out on the streets right. in Yeah,
0: uh, Out in the countryside, people had been very friendly. Mm-hmm. And I guess you had sort of convinced yourself, okay, it's going to be okay in Guatemala.
1: Yeah, and I did that over and over, um, unfortunately. I, I found most of the people... Even the Mexicans on the way home to be just wonderful, friendly, honest people. I had a little problem in Mexico on the way down. Um, I think that was a reflection of my anxieties. Um, you know, probably the look on my face wasn't friendly. And so I got, I got that in return. But everywhere I went, I would, I would sort of get a little false sense of security. And then the second we let our guard down, something bad would happen. Mm-hmm.
0: And I guess that it, more in the big cities, mm-hmm. maybe. The, yes, where,
1: where people would make their living, perhaps. Yeah, preying on foreigners. Yeah. And, yes, that's where the uh, and, and and the natives. That's where the the bad guys hang yeah. out. Yeah,
0: there's this line in the book. You you said you'd, you you uh, thought perhaps because it was a little cooler and
1: raining, perhaps the thieves would not be there at that night. Yeah, yeah, it was like you know 45 degrees and pouring rain and and nine o'clock at night, and I was just hoping. But no, you you read later in the papers. Those guys work all hours. They're yeah. up at six AM on the back of motorcycles. Um, you know, late at night. They they're they're a very industrious bunch of criminals down yeah. there in Central <laughs> America. So we're
0: gonna tell more more of the story. By the way, we're uh, we're talking about nine thousand miles of fatherhood. It's a true story. Kirk Millicent, Millison rather uh, takes his thirteen year old son Peter on this road trip. He's always envisioned. Uh, when you started out envisioned this alone, but you took your son along and did it Turned out to be a great thing, uh, the transformations in in your relationship. Um, a trip from Salt Lake City to uh, the the Darien Gap. Tell tell us about the Darien Gap
1: the and Darien, why you wanted to go there. Okay, um, you know I had I had had dreams early on about driving from the the Bering Sea to the tip of Tierra del Fuego in in uh, South America, and in researching this, found the Darien Gap uh, is a, a jungle area, the only roadless area between. Um, the Bering Sea and Tierra del Fuego—you cannot drive. Um, you have to, if you want to do that trip, you have to ship your car around. Uh, it just always intrigued me. You know, how can you not, in this day and age, have an area where you have no roads? How how can that be? Especially something so important—a connection between South and North America. You know, by the, you could drive trucks on things like that, and uh, it's just a really rugged, tons of rivers. Um, rugged mountains, thick jungle. Uh, there's also the Colombian guerrillas in, in, uh, in that part of the uh, uh, the world, um, drug runners. And uh, I think overall, I think the reason it hasn't been bridged, it's probably technologically possible, but I think the Panamanians don't want the trouble coming up from Colombia. Uh, they, they get enough of it. They just don't want to make it easy.
0: Mm. And so that it, that is the end of the road. If it is in the end of the road. Uh, you yeah. right? visa Panama. Yeah. There is a place. Yeah. Uh, so tell me uh, about the transformation in in your son. Okay. He's uh, you know the first uh, the journey, at least in in Utah. He's just sort of curled up on the seat.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Looks up over the you know in the window only when you stop. Mm-hmm. By the end in Panama, he's he's a sex symbol. Girls are, you know, <laughs> and that has to do with confidence, I'm sure. But what, uh, tell me about that transformation in him.
1: Okay. Um, first thing I have to say, you know, the blurb on the book, the marketing thing, is probably my fault. Um, but a reviewer pointed out to me when she read the book that the terms we described the 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 beginning of the book, Peter, um, emotionally estranged, timid, she read it and she she realized early on that you know this kid's a typical 21st century teenager. It's the old man who's got the problems. Um, once I, I kind of solved my own and started relating to him better, his confidence grew. Uh, he also, you know, he'd been a bad student and he was learning these, uh, um, subjects on the road that he couldn't do in school with the help of teachers. He's doing it by himself. And I found out kind of halfway through the trip, he was dominating it. I mean, he, he really got it. I think that gave him confidence. I think no one, I had his back and was proud of him. A lot of positive reinforcement gave him confidence We had an exercise regime where he started feeling bigger and stronger. And he actually grew about three or four inches on that trip, despite, you know, what I was feeding him. And uh, by Panama, it all kind of came together. And it was the weirdest thing. He would step out of the hotel room. And if there were girls on the street, um, very forward, you know, high school girls down there. Um, they'd come up and hug him. They'd come up want a picture of him. It was like traveling with a rock star. And that happened all the way up through Mexico. Hmm. Uh,
0: tell me about your transformation. You early on, you made this pact with your son. Mm-hmm. I guess you, you had a recognition that you were you had some negative behaviors.
1: I, I realized that the, the, the biggest thing is I realized that when I got stressed, I unloaded that on the people. Close to me. I never did it to the people I didn't care about. You know, the people I worked with. Um, uh, it was. I don't know why that is, but it's. You know, certainly not a good thing. But I recognized that fault in myself, and really um, made huge effort to uh, to stop that. And I, you know, I'm not batting a thousand, um, but I'm I'm aware of it now, hmm. much more. And I've been. A, uh, I think a whole lot calmer and a better person to be around in my own house. Hmm. We have uh, Kirk's wife, Allison, with us. I wonder what you noticed
0: when your son and and, uh, husband got back from this 9,000-mile road trip.
3: Um, The thing that was the most dear is that Peter would come home from school in the afternoon. Kirk would be at work. I'd pick Peter up. I worked mornings. Kirk worked evenings again. So I'd pick the kids up, get home. The first thing Peter would do, beeline to the phone, call his dad. Hi, Dad. What are you doing? How's your... Just a chat, which Mm -hmm. I'd never seen before. Every single day, that was the first thing he'd do. He just missed him because they'd been 24-7 for four months, just buddies now. And just... He didn't have anything he needed to say, but he just wanted to connect.
0: Did you you see a difference in uh, Kirk after Mm -hmm. this road trip? Mm
3: Mm-hmm. Although now we were back to our only seeing each other like twice a week, so...
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But... But, but... Yeah,
3: much calmer and... you know just it was a lot more pleasant around the house
0: yeah what about uh, hannah
1: this rub off your relationship with kirk with with your daughter um it's always been good but she was also one who didn't uh care that much about not that she didn't care about my opinion but she wasn't going out of her way to, to try to make me happy she was a self-motivated kid um, a lot of confidence i think in her abilities from the beginning and um you know, just we just stayed out of each other's way uh, uh, during those years when I was uh, working pretty hard. But um, yeah, she she didn't suffer from that. I don't think she cared that much. Mm-hmm.
3: Pe- Peter was always the pleaser, and mm-hmm. Hannah was always the "I'm just going to do what I need to do." Yeah, yeah.
1: Now, of course,
0: you wanted to go on the trip. You you mm-hmm. couldn't. You mm-hmm. you come back. You hear the stories. Yeah. Were you jealous? Wish I could have gone.
3: Well, in a way, I. I've finally learned after 29 years, though that it was less than, that, um, you know, from the outside, you think this is going to be a great trip and that sometimes there's hardships and things going on. You're like, oh, I guess I really didn't miss out on that much. (laughs) I'd love to do a trip like that, but under different conditions. Right.
0: So that takes me to next question. I'm wondering, you know, someone could pick this up and and sort of use see the adventure in it, the romance in it. Yeah. And uh, use it as sort of a travelogue, although you'd have to have an adventurous spirit to to do this yeah rather than go the touristy yeah. route but some people much prefer that and i wonder yeah. what your advice to the to those people would be if you want to just get in the car and
1: yeah take a well trip like the, this. the car thing i i wouldn't recommend even then it was a bad a bad thing we were a target u.s plates make you a target with the police with um uh, the border kind of the guys that hang around the border the flim flam guys um Everywhere you go, it's it's more trouble than it's worth. Now, today, you know, as dangerous as it was back then, I just read somewhere that Honduras, uh, El Salvador, and Guatemala now, that region, the most violent region in the world. Now, that's taken in war zones, everything. There's more homicides per capita in those three countries today, and it's like by a factor of two hmm. than the closest uh, country to them. So – I don't know. I, I don't know that I'd bring my kid down there right now. On that, under those circumstances, there's right. safe ways to do it. But um, the way we did it, I don't know. I, I probably yeah. wouldn't do it that way. So the safe ways would be go with go with the group. Go with the what, what, Well, what or, safe or ways? yeah, probably fly into um, uh, places and have things arranged uh, beforehand. Uh, have have either people picking you up and taking you somewhere or. Um, uh, you know if you rented one of their cars it would have Mexican plates and uh, and you could get to where you were going safely and hopefully have enough money to stay out of the areas we couldn't avoid yeah you were you, you did get some very
0: interesting experiences out of this you were in working class neighborhoods and and such uh, yeah but but I guess uh, you, you would suggest think twice about I would going some of those you areas know if right you're now. a
1: couple of young uh you know college kids that want to adventure or throw the backpacks on and do the bus thing through Central America. I think those people are pretty safe, by and large. Just um, stay off the streets at night. You know, don't go anywhere near an ATM at night. Um, uh, but you know, I, I think if you're smart and uh, you know, just travel wise, I I think you can do that. I have uh, um, acquaintances that just got back, uh, a couple of Utah State grads from started in Panama and kind of bounced around. Um, Central America and wound up in Mexico and then just flew home after four months and they had a wonderful time. Hmm. We're talking with uh, Kirk Milsen
0: and uh, Allison as well. Uh, the book is 9,000 Miles of Fatherhood, a true story. When we come back from a break, uh, Kirk will have you tell the, the story in Guatemala, uh, the rules of the road in Guatemala, which are, which are hair-raising in and of themselves. And a funny story about... Uh, your pride in your Spanish, and your, but your, the reality is that your son had better Spanish than you at this point. Uh, some interesting stories, uh, more after the break.
4: With the rise in the oil and gas industry, communities are growing and local economies are booming. We want to hear your stories about living with oil and gas in Utah and surrounding areas. Let us know how the boom is affecting your family, your community, and your local job or business. Tell us what's on your mind when the oil and gas are just down the street. To share your experience, join our Public Insight Network. Visit upr.org and then click on Become a Source.
2: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread. At 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3. Offering a house-pickled vegetable demi-baguette sandwich with tomato jam. Menu details at crumbrothers.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm
0: Tom Williams. We are on the road with Kirk Milson and his son Peter. The book is 9,000 Miles of Fatherhood, a true story, surviving crooked cops, teenage angst, Mexican moonshine on a journey to the end of the road, the transformations that happen in this father-son relationship. When he was forced out of his high-ranking editorial position at the Salt Lake Tribune, Kirk Milson uh, can't bear the thought of starting over, crawling back to the copy desk. So when his new boss offers him a leave of uh, absence, Kirk jumps at the chance to realize his dream of driving the more than 4,000 miles from Salt Lake City to Panama's Darien Gap. His wife consents. There's a catch, though. He has to take his son Peter along for the ride. So Peter gets this experience as well. We're telling uh, parts of this story. The book is out from uh, Cedar Fort uh, and available and the website, by the way, 9000miles.net. So Kirk Wilson, I guess as young people are wont to do, um, your son picks up Spanish quite readily. And much to your chagrin, I guess, uh, damaging your pride, he, he, he
1: at a certain point, his Spanish is much better than yours. Oh, very quickly. I'd had two years of college, University of Utah Spanish, and I couldn't speak it. Um, he's down there a month. And... You know, we're, we're about to leave Mexico, and I want to get the car kind of ready for the next leg. Um, so I took it in to get an oil change. And we're sitting around there, and the guy pulls it under this uh, tin roof kind of lean-to thing, and, and he's going at it. I'm a little nervous because I had told him what I wanted, and he'd fired back 100-mile-an-hour Spanish, and I didn't understand a word of it, but I'm kind of thinking it's probably going along okay, so... I go wandering over, and I go, uh, how's it going? He goes, oh, it's good, good. So I go wandering back. I'm feeling pretty good about myself. And I tell Peter in Spanish, showing off a little bit. He's almost done with the oil change. We'll get the car in a minute. Peter goes, well, they have to finish the steam cleaning of the engine first in Spanish. And I go, they're not going to clean the engine. He goes, yeah, they are. And I go... I didn't tell him to do that. And he said, well, you didn't say no. Well, I look over, and you can't see the car anymore. There's a cloud of steam. He's in there hosing this thing down. You know, those old cars, they're not meant – you can't get water in them. And the alternator um, was soaking wet, and I just knew down there in that climate it was only a matter of time before it went bad, rusted shut. And it did, which caused us a lot of problems later on. So with the money you took, how did you afford the – the, the trip, I think you had to stop a while in Oaxaca. We did. We That that was the thing. On the road with that gas-guzzling car, um, that probably took a third of the money we left with just driving that car. It was a big mistake. Um, but when we'd get off the road, hunker down, rent a place, um, you know, a lot of rice and beans during that time, we could sort of get back on budget. And we, we did that especially uh, hunkered down in uh, – Quetzaltenango, got a real cheap rental, um, tried to live on, you know, a couple bucks a day um, food, which you can do, but it's miserable food, um, and got to the end of that. And we think we're back on budget. And well, I had some money hidden in the car in a carton of oil. And so the last day in Quetzaltenango, time to get the thousand bucks out of the oil can. And I'd had it wrapped up in triple wrapped in plastic bags and as i'm pulling them apart i'd pull the first plastic bag out you'd you dump out a you know substantial amount of oil second bag same deal we got down and those those bills were soaked soaked with oil black smelly unusable down there so after a uh, a month of um, you know spartan living doesn't doesn't begin to tell the tale of that um, suddenly we're a thousand dollars down again.
0: Amazing. Amazing. Uh, tell me the, uh, the rules of the road in, in Guatemala. It's okay. is a, a funny story and the death defying young men who, who
1: collect fares. Yeah. Yeah. It's real simple. Uh, the bigger the vehicle, um, the more chance you have of having the right away, these big buses, they will just pull out and be in your lane. Um, and, and not worry about uh, the consequences because they're bigger than you are. So you're driving down the road. Um, we were following a bus. He pulled out around another bus and slowly passed the guy. And by the time he got in, there were six or seven cars off in the grass, off the site. He'd just run them off. Um, so we just stayed behind the buses, you know, when we were driving. And uh, um, every once in a while you'd see – He'd see some guy, some skinny young Guatemalan guy, back door would fly open. He'd come out the back, climb up a ladder, run along this weaving roof, swing back down in the front. He had been collecting fares, forcing his way through this mass of people. They always had twice as many people as the bus was built for, um, just packed shoulder to shoulder. Uh, And they just found it easier to... Um, climb up and over and swing in, then uh, then then try to fight their way back to the front. Yeah. Even though it was very dangerous. Very dangerous. You'd sure. yeah, read about them yeah. falling off yeah. and getting killed. Yeah.
0: Tell me about when you got to Panama. We've already made reference that Peter was very popular with the young, young mm-hmm. woman. Uh, must have been a quite a sense of accomplishment for both of you when you when you well,
1: reached. Well, Peter hated it. Peter hated that aspect of it. He was only 13. Um, I think he was feeling great about himself, enjoying you know being with his dad, Um, but the girl thing, uh, he didn't enjoy that at all. He was like a dog getting a bath when all these girls would come get him in a big group hug and, you know, for pictures, things like that. So I enjoyed that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, then the, you know, the trip back,
0: you arrive home. What, uh, maybe we turn to you, Allison. What, Uh what do you think Peter felt from this? It, It was a big adventure. And I think
3: it, it was a big adventure, but I think it was a relief to finally get home. Mm-hmm. I think maybe part of the his appeal. Kirk had said this before, down in Panama, it was they'd finally reached their goal, and they were turning around to come the other way. And he's seeing now Christmas is coming. His eyes start glistening with snow and skiing, and you know life as he knew it. And he'd had this great adventure, but I think it was he felt secure to come home and he could kind of let his guard down and you know kind of go back to his friends and right. you know had it all under his belt and was happy he'd done it but you know glad to be in his own bed again
0: and kirk what's switch your you you come back to a problem yeah. uh, you're you're out of a job or if
1: you take mm-hmm. it it's a it's a lesser job mm-hmm. what what did you i guess it was kind of
0: sweet well, coming back? Or what?
1: Yeah, it was definitely, you know, that was not the, the place I wanted to be. But I did have a couple things. I'd done this big trip that I'd been dreaming about. So, you know, that was an itch that had been scratched. Also, we found out very early on, um, my son got back so far ahead of his classmates in algebra that they didn't catch up by June. And he was straight A's from that point on. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a great feeling to know that, you know I wasn't worried about that anymore that that some real good had come uh, come of this. So I was able to kind of settle down into that rut again for a couple of years and uh, uh, survive it. I, I think going back to the copy desk without that trip, I don't I, I don't think I could have done it. Hmm. Well, so, what the trip do do for you then? You'd scratched the itch, but what uh,
0: new perspective? What?
1: Well, you know, I I, I was just a lot. I would calmed down. I didn't feel like uh, life was getting away from me. This big thing I wanted to, to, to do had been done. Um, I I I had a better relationship with my family. That was great. Um, uh, you know, that was a lot. Um, mm-hmm. just seeing my son. Uh, excel in school like he'd never done. I mean that became who he was. That that became how he identified himself. Mm-hmm. I'm the smart kid. You know, I'm I'm uh, top 5 at at the high school right now and when, when the the grades would come out and um uh it it, it was very satisfying. Mm.
3: Pe- Peter had always had the ability, but he just didn't have the determination to sit there and get his homework done. We'd be doing homework He'd do the homework. I check it. He'd redo it. He, I check it. He'd redo it every night. And after they came home from their trip, I didn't check his homework once after that. Mm-hmm. He was just self-motivated. You know, besides having the ability, now he had the motivation. Yeah. Yeah. And and I'll just say this about Kirk too. He had always had a dream to become fluent in Spanish, and so this trip was a big part of that. I think, um, able to kind of put put that to rest because he had about accomplished that goal.
0: Yeah. Well, it's a fascinating story. Um, 9,000 Miles of Fatherhood, a true story. Kirk
1: Milson is the author. We've had uh, him with us. Yes. Can I say one thing? Um, To to get that, a couple stores down in Salt Lake, uh, Weller Bookworks and um, King's English um, very, very graciously uh, carried the book. And then we have Walmart and Costco and Barnes & Noble. Okay, great. And then
0: I I imagine people could go to the website as well find out more. 9,000miles.net. Mm-hmm. Uh, Allison, as well. Thank you. For being You're with welcome.
3: Us. It was a pleasure.
0: Tomorrow on the program, we're going to have a recurrence of uh, one of our popular episodes. It's a pet show, and we're encouraging you to go to our Facebook page and post the picture of your pet and tell us the story of your pet. We'll have uh, a veterinarian uh, with us to answer your pet questions. That's tomorrow for producers uh, uh, Katie Swain and Elizabeth Gee. I'm uh, Tom Williams. Thanks so much for listening today.
3: Welcome to Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Bridgerland Audubon Society, USU Extension, and the Quinney
4: College of Natural Resources at Utah State University. This is Linda Curvin for Bridgerland Audubon Society. Weedy plants of old world origin threaten natural areas throughout the United States. An invading plant colonizing a completely new area often lacks the insects, diseases, and herbivores that kept it in check back in its native homeland. If the introduced plant grows and spreads vigorously, it can spell disaster for the native inhabitants of its new home. With no natural controls in place, it may outcompete native plants and greatly diminish biodiversity. Disturbed or degraded habitats are most susceptible to invasion by Eurasian weeds. Utah hosts many invasive weeds, causing problems throughout the state. One Eurasian grass threatening sagebrush habitat and rangeland is Medusa head rye. Medusa head rye probably came to the United States as a seed contaminant in the eighteen eighties. The seed head is heavy, so on its own cannot spread far, but the seeds do have a ticket for dispersal-tufted hairs which cling and readily attach to livestock and vehicles. Once on site, Medusa head grows vigorously, crowding out other plants. Medusa head tissue contains abundant silica, which slows its decomposition. The accumulation of dead material forms a dense thatch that smothers other plants. This dry thatch layer can also fuel wildfires. In addition, the gritty silica makes medusa head unpalatable, so both domestic and wild grazing animals avoid eating it. Infested ranches can lose three-quarters of their grazing capacity. Sage grouse are already in trouble due to habitat loss, and medusa head has invaded more than 10 million acres of the sagebrush that sage grouse call home. Once invaded by Medusahead, sagebrush habitat is very difficult to restore. The best hope is to prevent, or at least hinder its spread, through management using controlled burns, herbicides, and careful grazing. Non-native invasive plants are among the most serious threats to our natural world and the habitats and species we know and love. This is Linda Curvin for Bridgerland Audubon Society.
3: Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Bridgerland Audubon Society, USU Extension, and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu.
0: Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio.
2: Thank you for listening to Access Utah Today. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. Stay tuned for the TED Radio Hour coming your way. It is now 10 o'clock.